Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. One tiny mistake can land a killer on the radar of police. On February 23rd, 1998, a man was sentenced for his many crimes. Crimes that the police had no clue who committed until he made the fatal mistake of taking the life of a boy who knew him. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. The setting of today's story is a large town in the east coast of South Africa called Port Elizabeth, a country with the second highest number of serial killers next to the infamous United States, though the media coverage is nowhere near as intense. On January 22, 1997, a 12-year-old boy named Henry Bakers disappeared but wasn't noticed for quite some time because his mother spent a good while thinking he had gone over to his grandmother's home in nearby Missionvale, a home within walking distance from their home in Algoa Park. However, when he had still not come home by the following Thursday, the worry finally began to set in and the next morning, a trip over to her mother's house told her that Henry had been missing for two full days. The Child Protection Unit was finally called to aid in the search for Henry and Sergeant Ursula Bernard began investigating the case. After questioning Henry's mother, the young boy who had been at his grandmother's home had left on the 22nd to play with a friend at a nearby park. The friend then told her that Henry left at some point to buy milk for his parents and saw him walking with a man named Stuart Wilkin in Dyke Way. The friend asked Henry where he was going, and this man answered instead and told him that it was none of his business. Both Henry and his mother Ellen knew who Stuart was, and she mentioned to police that the man had even lived at her mother's for a while after he was put out due to marital problems though some sources claim she was an ex-wife of Stewart's. So they shifted the investigation and went looking for Stuart Wilkin, which soon became an issue because this man didn't seem to have any fixed address. While attempting to find him, though, investigators found out an interesting piece of information that would not only change the case of Henry Baker, but the status of a series of unsolved cases that, up until this moment, had never once been connected. While trying to find Stewart, police found out that his own daughter, Wagner, had disappeared back in 1995, and that the man had two charges of sodomy against him that were actively being investigated. Charges filed by his own in-laws in connection to the two sons he had with his second wife, Victoria. On January 28, 1997, Stuart Wilkin was located, arrested, and brought in for questioning. When asked about Henry... Stewart showed a genuine concern about the boy's whereabouts, but said he knew nothing about the actual disappearance. In fact, he claimed he had been in the company of a lady friend on the night in question. He was eventually released, but remained on police radar. 
which is a good thing because they soon found out that that alibi was a complete fabrication. And he was rearrested on January 31st, at which time the Child Protection Unit contacted Sergeant Derek Norsworthy of the Murder and Robbery Unit. A man trained by Dr. Mickey Pistorius, South Africa's first psychological profiler. Sergeant Norsworthy had Stewart brought into his office, where he introduced himself as Bodie Boer, or Brother Farmer, and the sergeant sat him right across from a photo of his own daughter, who had been about the same age as Wene. He left Stewart alone for a few moments, and when he returned, he was staring at the photo of his daughter. Luring him further into his submission, Sergeant Norsworthy pointed out his certificates and awards on his wall, signifying that he was a trained homicide investigator and, once again, caught Stewart staring at the photo of his young daughter. That's when the investigator dropped a bomb. He claimed he knew Stewart was responsible for the murder of two children and knew he had visited the bodies to fantasize and commit acts of necrophilia. Stewart went silent for a moment or two, before stretching out his hands and saying, I am sick, before launching into a full confession to the murder of both his daughter and Henry Baker's, a boy whose body he had just revisited that morning to have sex with. He went on to say that Winnie, who was last seen on September 29, 1995, had been his daughter from his first marriage and had been visiting with her mother on the day of her disappearance. He said he was worried about her well-being, didn't think she had enough food in the house, and that she was being sexually assaulted by her new stepfather. He said she told him that she wanted to run away to Happy Valley, where there is a garden filled with fairy tale figures a place where Stuart played as a child and had some of his happiest memories. There, he, quote, inspected Wene's vagina and found that she was, quote, no longer a virgin. He felt he needed to save her from the kind of life he had, strangled her, and sent her soul to God. He then removed her clothing but kept her body, talking to it, sleeping next to it, and when the flesh began to decompose, covered her skeleton in tarpaulin. As for Henry Baker's, Stewart met the boy in Algoa Park and claimed that the young boy asked him about sex. So, under the guise of helping the boy with his question, Stewart took him to an open field, told him to take off his clothing, and proceeded to perform fellatio on him. He then sodomized Henry, and when he cried out in protest, Stewart reached down and began to strangle him. As the young boy took his last breath, Stewart reached sexual satisfaction. He said that he saved Henry the same way he did his own daughter. After his confession, Stewart attempted to explain away his horrendous crimes by blaming the parents who abused him. He then took the police to the spot where he left the bodies and showed them where he left Wenye's body prior to its discovery on May 22, 1996. Remains that had, up until this moment, been completely unidentified. Henry's decomposing body was located and his mother was delivered the devastating news. Back at the police station, Sergeant Norsworthy wasn't all too convinced that these two murders were his only crimes. So, he pressed Stewart some more and asked if there was any more bodies. He replied that there were probably at least 10. You see, by the time Henry Bakers had disappeared from that park in 1997, there had been at least eight other people already murdered over the course of seven years that, until his fatal mistake, had never even been connected to each other, let alone a perpetrator. 
That was all about to change as Stuart Wilkin made a full confession in explicit details to his lawyers. A confession that kept Sergeant Norsworthy and his colleagues busy for months trying to locate, confirm, and notify all of the families of the victims. The first confirmed murder took place in February of 1990, when 15-year-old Monte Fico, a boy described as a street child, was sodomized and strangled to death just like Henry Baker's. On October 3rd, 1990, after an argument with his first wife, Stewart went out to pick up a sex worker and found Virginia Geisman, 25, whom he paid, took to the Dagbreak Primary School, had sex with, and then strangled her to death after he forcibly sodomized her. He left her body in the schoolyard and went back home to his wife. On January 10th, 1991, he was solicited by 37-year-old Marcia Pappenfuss, and when she demanded her payment prior to intercourse, he flew into a rage and strangled her to death. He had sex with her body and left her abandoned in St. George's Park. On October 21st, 1991, he met a 14-year-old street boy, who remains unnamed, and agreed to have sex with him in exchange for some much-needed money. The boy wanted his money, which angered Stewart, and as the boy attempted to flee the dangerous situation, he was overpowered, sodomized, and strangled. The same happened with another unnamed street child in 1993. His body was hidden in a ravine, and again to another sex worker, 42-year-old Georgian Bonaswaz Wenny, in Prince Alfred's Park. She was assaulted with a knife after being strangled to death and suffered from 20 different stab wounds, and her nipples were cut off. On September 29, 1995, he killed his daughter, Wenye. And on May 25, 1996, he hired 22-year-old sex worker Katerina Klossman, shoved a piece of plastic bag down her throat to keep her from screaming, and strangled her to death. Somewhere between May and August of 1996, he met and killed another street child after he threatened to go to the police. And on January 22, 1997, he killed Henry Baker's. When he was finished with his confession, Stewart told the investigators that he went to the bodies of each of the boys after they were killed, rubbed vinegar and butter on their feet to hide their scent from the police dogs, rolled up pieces of newspaper and inserted it into their anuses to keep out maggots, and would commit acts of necrophilia until they were far too decomposed to enjoy. Stuart Wilkin was charged with 10 counts of murder and 5 counts of sodomy on February 3, 1997, with doctors and experts testifying in courts that he was the type of offender, or serial killer, who could not be rehabilitated and should be sentenced as such. A point that seemed to be proven when, during his trial, Stuart excused himself to go to the bathroom and, on his way, told Sergeant Norsworthy that he was going to masturbate. Aroused by the recounting of the pain and agony he inflicted on women and children. The defense, who claimed there wasn't enough evidence to convict their client, said that Stewart was abused as a child and learned to be a sadist from an early age, that he was powerless to his upbringing. Born on November 11, 1966, in Boxburg, when Stuart Wilkin was just six months old, he was left in a phone booth with his two-year-old sister until they were rescued by a domestic worker who found them and took them home to her employer, a man known only as Doip, who subjected the boy to horrific abuse. He burned his genitals with cigarettes, was denied most food and told to eat with the animals from their bowls, 
and was forced to lick the man's penis after he engaged in bestiality with his dogs. Stewart's sister eventually disappeared and no one knows what happened to her. When he was two years old, Doip's neighbors, out of pity, adopted Stuart, who was by this point malnourished and infested with lice. He was given his name, though he mostly went by Botibor, and at some point moved to Port Elizabeth. Stuart spent the rest of his childhood struggling with both school and friendships, failed the third grade three times, and was mocked by his peers for being adopted. According to him, the teachers never intervened on his behalf and instead egged on the abuse. Because of this, Stuart assaulted one of his teachers and was severely beaten by his principal as a result. The beating took place in front of all of his peers. He was known to bite his stepmother as a child and she, in response, would lock him in his room where he would kick over the light and destroy the furniture. According to Stuart, he was also locked in a cupboard on occasion, punished for wetting his bed, and after getting in trouble for fighting back when a boy attacked him, was not defended by his own family. It was at that point that he decided that he would be his own mother, father, sister, and auntie. By the age of eight, he was smoking pot, and at the age of nine, he was sodomized himself by the deacon of his Sunday school, right around the same time his stepfather tragically passed away. Overwhelmed by her difficult child, Stuart was placed in a reformatory where he was further abused and further sexually assaulted. He then enlisted in the army, but was discharged after just four months after an attempt to take his own life. He then met the woman who would become his first wife at a local nightclub, and on December 25th, 1985, had his first child, the girl he would eventually brutally strangle to death, Winye. The marriage was not a happy one, with his wife citing acts of violence, both physical and sexual, as well as drug abuse. They eventually divorced and Stuart vowed to never have sex with another white woman in fear that she may be his long-lost sister. He then met a woman named Veronica, who already had two sons, and the pair married and had two more daughters. This marriage didn't last long, and Veronica's parents accused Stuart of sodomizing his two stepsons. After hearing about his life, Dr. Pistorius said that any stress in Stuart's life would send him into a murderous rage, meaning he was far too dangerous to ever walk free ever again. The judge seemed to agree, and on February 20th, 1998, he was found guilty of seven counts of murder and two counts of sodomy, and on February 23rd, was sentenced to seven life sentences. Stewart's wife, Veronica, who attended the proceedings and heard all of the details of his crimes, reconciled with her husband and, just moments after he was sentenced, engaged him in a passionate kiss goodbye. Sergeant Norsworthy eventually tracked down Stewart's biological mother and learned that she had reunited with his sister shortly after she disappeared. She said to tell Stewart that she had not abandoned him and that she still loved him. Upon hearing this news, Stuart Wilkin broke down in tears. He remains behind bars where he is plagued with hallucinations that he believes are the ghosts of his victims. In 2005, in a weird twist of fate, Lynn Havaniga, his first wife, was beaten to death with a brick by three men who stormed into the telephone booth that she was in, forced her into their car, and drove off. Her body was found, but no arrests were ever made. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. 
Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on February 24th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.